0: Before we begin the podcast, I have a very important announcement. Today, and really the whole week, our organization, Torch, is running our annual fundraiser. The website for the fundraiser is givetorch.org. As you know, our organization, Torch, does amazing things. We have the best rabbis on the planet. Of course, I am not biased when I make that assessment. We have the best Torah podcasts on the planet. And again, I'm not biased about that but we have a lot of expenses. We're a nonprofit. There is no steady flow of income. And the only way that we could pay our bills, and we could pay the rabbis and the rabbitsons and pay the rent for the amazing Torch Center and to pay for all the amazing things we need to do here at Torch, the only way we do that is via the generosity of our friends and supporters. We have to fundraise. Now, some organizations like to fundraise all the time. Every time you provide services... You provide value, you ask for some support. After all, you're a nonprofit. But a torch, we have a different philosophy. The whole year long, we provide Torah, we provide Jewish wisdom and insight, all for free. The Torch Center is all for free, the podcasts are all free. And then once a year, we do a week of fundraising, we do a blitz. Of fundraising at divtorch.org. And we raise in one week, please God, the bulk of our annual operating expenses. And that week is right now. And after all, you are listening to our podcast. You enjoy our work. You appreciate what we do. You find our offerings to be interesting and educational and valuable and compelling. So today, I hereby ask for your support. Please give us your support to keep the flame of Torch lit for 2022. I'm asking you for your friendship. I'm asking you for your generosity. I am asking you, please go visit right now, givetorch.org. There is a link in the description of this podcast. Visit the website givetorch.org and make a donation to Torch. This is a matching fundraiser which means that every donation at givetorch.org will be tripled by an incredible group of matchers. So please give what you can give. Support the annual fundraiser. Amplify your donation. It's going to be tripled. And help make this campaign a success. If everyone listening right now stops what they're doing and visits givetorch.org and gives what they can give, this campaign will be a success, and the great work of Torch will continue. The flame of Torch will continue; it will shine brightly for another year. Without your support, I certainly wouldn't be able to do the podcasts. Torch wouldn't able to be functional. We'd have to close, and I'd, I don't know what I would do. I would maybe sell mortgages or cabinets, work in healthcare become a lawyer, I'd have to find a new job. But thanks to you, thanks to the generosity of the supporters of our organization, Torch, Torch is able to teach and spread Torah in never-before-seen scales. Just via the podcasts this year, this past year, in 2021, we eclipsed more than a half a million downloads and we were perennially Listed amongst the top podcasts in Judaism. And I want to stress, this amazing accomplishment, it's not mine, it's not ours, the great team here at Torch. This is the handiwork of all of you who supported our organization. Us together accomplished these amazing accomplishments over this past year here at Torch. We don't believe that we have any donors. Even though... You may go to givetorch.org and make a donation, and you'll get an email that says, thank you for your donation. We don't look at donors as donors. We view them as partners. Whatever merit we get from the unprecedented amount of Torah and Jewish heritage and Jewish history that we spread here at Torch, whatever merit we get, that's divided Between us, the amazing team at Torch, and the partners who support our work. You have my pledge. If you invest in us, if you invest in our team here at Torch, if you become a partner at GiveTorch.org, I commit myself, please God, with help of the Almighty, to work tirelessly over the upcoming year on behalf of you, my partner. I commit to give 110% to advance the goals of connecting Jews and Judaism over this upcoming year if you're my partner. And I'll tell you that this past year it was of course a crazy year as every year seems to be but the light of torch and the flame of torch was burning brightly the entire year. Thank God The efforts of Torch bore fruit. We succeeded in doing incredible things this year. We spread Torah in ways never seen before. In fact, we had an internal goal here at Torch to try to have a million touches of Torah, which means someone who comes to our class, someone who comes to the Torch Center, someone who meets with one of the rabbis, someone who downloads one of the podcasts. We had over a million touches of Torah this past year. And we hope, of course, every year to grow that number we need your help. So please click the pause button, pause the podcast, visit givetorch.org. You can find the link in the description and give what you can give to support Torch in 2022 to support the podcast. This is an online fundraiser. It's a matching fundraiser. Every donation will be tripled. And there's a link in the description and I'm asking you please to pause the podcast And visit GiveTorch.org and support Torch and support the amazing podcasts that we produce. Now, I know from previous years that when I make this appeal, the one annual appeal to go to GiveTorch.org, some of y'all will say, you know what, Rabbi, you convinced me. I'm going to give in. I'm going to give generously. I'm going to go to GiveTorch.org right now and give what I can give. And all the people who do that You should be blessed with unlimited blessing. You should be showered with tremendous blessing from the Almighty for your generosity. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your partnership. But many of y'all will say, you know what? Eh, Let me click skip. Skip 30 seconds. Skip, skip, skip. Let's get rid of this appeal. Get it over with. Some of you are just not convinced. So every year I try to persuade even the skeptics That supporting Torch at GiveTorch.org is a worthy cause, one of the worthiest charities for you to invest in. Now, last year I made a big mistake. Last year I tried to persuade you by doing something really foolish and really reckless. Last year I decided to give out my cell phone number, 713-301-3611, to the whole world. Whoever listens to this podcast will know my number. What a terrible mistake I did last year. Why would anyone share their cell phone number and tell the world that it's 713-301-3611? Who knows who may call him? Who may text him at 713-301-3611? That's what I did last year, and this year I'm not making that same mistake. This year I'm not going to be giving out my cell phone number. This year I'm going to try to speak to your heart and to your logic. So If you've never given, and you say, you know what, yeah, they do some great work. Yeah, I enjoy the podcast. You know what? The Torch Center sounds kind of swell, but you've never pulled the trigger to become partner. Now is the time for you to invest your charity dollars, your charity dinars, your charity pound sterling in Torch. And here's my argument. You're giving Tzedakah. You're giving charity anyhow. You're supporting worthy causes anyhow. Why not allocate some of your support, some of your charity dollars, some of your charity funds, some of your generosity to Torch to support the amazing work that we do here? I think the Torch is maybe one of the worthiest causes there is. After all, we're trying to connect Jews and Judaism. Is there a greater mission than that? But also, we offer the best bang for your buck. We have a shoestring operation here. The rabbis and rabbis are working round the clock to connect Jews and Judaism. And we do only one fundraiser a year. And today is that day. And we need your help. So please visit givetorch.org. You give and you keep the flame of torch lit. Whoever supports us, whoever visits the website givetorch.org, the link is in the description. Is a partner with us in our work. If everyone was listening says, I am going to partner with Torch. I'm going to visit givetorch.org. I'm going to make a donation. Every donation will be tripled. We will accomplish our goal. And it's very important for me to have 100% participation. I want to get everyone on board. Give what you can give. If you've given the past, give generously again in 2022. Partner with us partner with Torch, support us, support the Parsha podcast, support the Jewish History podcast, support the Torah 101 podcast, support this Jewish Life podcast, support the Mizpah podcast, support the Ethics podcast, support all the fantastic work of Torch. I know it's hard. I know it's a schlep, but stop the podcast. Visit GiveTorch.org. You won't regret it. And forgive me for pestering you. If I have your number, I will probably try to call you this week. Be nice to me, please. Even if I'm interrupting you, please forgive me. We do this only once a year. Support us. Support the amazing work. GiveTorch.org. Thank you so much for an amazing year of Torch Podcasts. I am eternally grateful to you for your support. Thank you for listening. Please, God, the campaign will be a smashing success. And Torch will have another fabulous year. And we're going to have this tough conversation, this business meeting again next year. But right now, I need you to visit givetorch.org and give what you can give. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalbejima.com. And now, to the podcast. Parsha's Tisisa has 139 verses, 9 mitzvos, and arguably the most shocking and troubling episode in the whole Torah, the episode of the Golden Calf. 40 days after Sinai, after the most momentous event in all of human history, the Jewish people collectively as a nation experience prophecy at the foot of the mountain, and 40 days later, Moshe returns from heaven to find the Jewish people celebrating the Golden Calf. The majority of the Parsha is going to be dealing with the Golden Calf episode and its aftermath, But the Parsha is going to begin with wrapping up the instructions related to the Mishkan to the tabernacle, the material that we covered over the last two parshios. Now the Parsha begins with another instruction of fundraising to raise funds needed for the Mishkan and for its ongoing operations. But also we get an interesting twist on that. And that is, God tells Moshe that when you count the Jewish people, when you want to do a census to count the Jewish people, you do it in the way of fundraising for the Mishra and eventually for the temple. How so? There's a prohibition against counting the Jewish people individually by people. Instead, what you do is each individual, each male above the age of 20, donates a half shekel coin to the temple coffers. And then you count the coins, and the coins serve as a proxy for the amount of people. You know how many coins you have. You know how many people you have. And Arashi points out that it talks about the truma, the donation, three times because there's three different donations that are given. Two of them are compulsory on every male. One of them that was done once, and that was used for the silver sockets at the base of the tabernacle. One was done annually, and that was done for all the public sacrifices needed for that year. And the third donation was also one time for the materials needed for the Mishkan, and that was non-compulsory. Each individual wanted to give as much as they wanted uh, if they choose. If they want to give nothing, that's, that's also their prerogative. Now, what's the problem with counting people by the head? Why can't you count people? You have to count the coins. So the verse tells us, when you take a sense of the children of Israel, according to the numbers, every man shall give Hashem an atonement for a soul when counting them, so that there will not be a plague amongst them when counting them. This shall they give everyone who passes through the census a half shekel of the sacred shekel. The shekel is 20 geras. Half a shekel as a portion to God. Everyone who passes through the census from age 20 and up shall give the portion of Hashem. Here we're told that if we count them individually, it's going to be a disaster. There's going to be a plague. Rashi tells us that this is the idea of Ein Hara, the idea of the evil I, meaning that if you flaunt something like the amount of people in your nation, the amount of wealth that you have or whatever it may be, if something's in a very public way, so it's promoted so everyone could see, then the eye of the onlookers can cast a negative influence on the thing that they're looking at and therefore if they're looking at the Jewish people and, and the individuals and someone sees that, then that could convey a negative influence, a negative effect onto those people and therefore you don't count the people you'd count instead the coins and through that you know how many people people they are. And this is interesting because this is the first time of two in the Parsha that we see a sensitivity against promotion, against flaunting, against doing things in a very public fashion, which could lead to potential harm. Now, why is the counting, why is the census, when there is a census to be done, why is there a census done only from the age of 20 and up? Rashi tells us, that at the age of 20, someone can be part of the military, someone could be a, a soldier in the army, and therefore the only reason why you would even need to count the people is to know how many soldiers you have in your fighting force, and therefore if someone is younger than 20, or if they're not a male, then there's no need to count them. The khastuni one of the other commentaries, tells us something interesting. He says that this counting a census is a method of atonement. And when someone is counted, when someone is included amongst the greater populace, then they are granted a degree of heavenly atonement. And he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud says that up to the age of 20, someone is not liable for heavenly punishment, even though a earth-based, a terra firma-based court punishes from the age of 13 from when someone is bar mitzvah. The heavenly court only punishes from the age of 20 and on. And therefore, if someone's not liable for heavenly punishment, then there is no need for them to have an atonement. Now, according to Rashu, who says that the counting was just a way to know the amount of soldiers. The whole focus of the verse where it talks about that there should be an atonement, that's not referring to an atonement for a sin, so to speak. Rather, it's a way of saying that they won't be destroyed by the counting. You count them in this circuitous way you count the coins and via the coins you know how many people there are and that way you'll avoid having the catastrophe of the plague and therefore that is considered like an atonement because the result is the same the people will be okay this is really interesting that uh, according to the chastuni and other commentaries merely by someone being counted amongst the jewish people that provides them an atonement so maybe the simple answer is that after all This census was another way of saying, let's have everyone give a coin and that will be used towards the purchasing of the public sacrifices. And this is, like we said, a fundraising drive that repeated each year, each year you have a census and each year you have this drive for all the materials needed for the ongoing operation of the temple. And maybe that's what it's referred to by an atonement because when someone is counted and they pledge their yearly gift, their yearly donation, by doing that, they're contributing towards the collective benefit of the atonements so of the sacrifices, and therefore that provides them an atonement. I want to maybe suggest an alternative answer, that when someone is counted amongst the Jewish people, it's in a form of atonement because it transforms the individual from being an individual to being part of the collective. There's a theme that we see in especially during the high holidays, but generally speaking, that when someone is part of a collective whole, they're judged not as an individual because all of us, after all, are fallible individuals, but instead they get judged as a member of the public, as a member of the Jewish people and by doing that, because we know the Jewish people will always survive, therefore they will likely survive, they'll be granted an atonement. Whereas if they're judged individually, it's quite likely that they may not be able to withstand the scrutiny and their uh, the judgment will not be in their favor. So that's the first idea of the Parsha, uh, the idea of fundraising and using that to do a census. And then we go back to other materials and other vessels needed for the Tabernacle, And the first thing we read about is the kior, which is a washing basin wherein the kohanim, the the priests, would wash their hands and their feet before they walked into the tabernacle. This would be included in the courtyard. This would not be inside the tabernacle. Inside the tabernacle, you have the menorah, the inner altar, the golden altar, and the shulchan. And then, of course, past the partition in the Holy of Holies, you have the ark. But outside of the 30 by 10 cubit Mishkan tabernacle, you have the large copper altar, and you also have next to it, you have the TR, which is, like we said, a basin in which you wash your hands. And the commentaries tell us that actually, there really isn't the need to have a basin. What we really need is to have a place where you wash your hands. If they wash their hands in some other way, that would also be okay. And interestingly, we're told that the way they would wash their hands and their feet, it would be done simultaneously. You put your right hand on your right foot, left hand on your left foot, you wash them under the spigots of the kior, and by doing that, you are now able to walk into the mishkan. Interestingly, what happens if they don't do it? Whenever they come into the tent of meeting, they shall wash their, they shall wash with water and not die, or when they approach the altar to serve, to raise up a smoke and a fire offering to Hashem, They shall wash their hands and feet and not die. And of course, Rashi points out what's implied from this, that if they don't wash their feet, then they will die. It's a capital offense if someone neglects, if a Cohen neglects to wash their hands and feet before they go into the tabernacle or before they offer sacrifices, that is something that they can die for. Important to note, this is not a capital offense that's meted out in a court of law that exists over here. Rather, it means that they're guilty for a capital offense in the eyes of God in the heavenly court. And this is kind of similar to what we saw last week, where the high priest very specific garments he needs to wear. And if he's missing some of the bells or pomegranates on the bottom of his me'il of, of one of the garments, that would be a transgression worthy of capital punishment. Why is it so important for someone to have, for Kohen, to have clean hands, clean feet when they walk into the tabernacle. So the Ramban offers two reasons. The first one is a Kabbalistic reason that I read several times and I still don't understand. And then he adds that you cannot walk into the presence of a king with dirty hands and or foul-smelling feet, which is why, according to some of the commentaries, we must wash our hands in the morning, the nitilati time in the morning, After all, our life as Jews are service of God. We wake up in the morning, we're embarking on our service of God. And just like the Kohen who walks into the tabernacle has to have clean hands, so too we must have clean hands. The next item discussed in the Parsha, again, the Almighty instructs Moses to create the anointment oil that is going to be used to anoint all the vessels of the tabernacle, the structure of the tabernacle itself and the priests and the garments, the vestments of the priests. This is the special anointment oil that is going to be used to consecrate the priests and the tabernacle. And Hashem instructs Moses to take a very specific mix of ingredients, 500 shekel weights of myrrh, cinnamon, all these various different ingredients, and you create an oil out of that. A blended compound, it should have the handiwork of a perfumer, and this is the oil that you use for sacred anointment. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, which is another name for the tabernacle, and the ark of the covenant, and the table, and all the vessels, and the menorah, and the altar, and the inner altar, the outer altar, all the utensils including the Tior, the water basin, the washing basin that we just read about. Now, you should sanctify them, and they shall remain holy of holies. Whatever touches them shall become holy. So this is the instruction to make the anointment. All we saw about it a little bit briefly last week when there was the instructions of the inauguration, that week of inauguration, when the Kohanim, when the priests, the sons of Aaron and Aaron, are going to be elevated from being regular Levites to being priests, Uh, we mentioned briefly last week that they need to uh, have this anointment oil placed upon them. And here is the instruction to actually do it. And like we mentioned in the past, so far we have not yet had any implementation of any of these instructions. These are just the instructions to make the tabernacle and its vessels and the vestiments, etc. And soon, uh, soon enough, in the end of the book, we're going to read about the actualization, the implementation of this. Now, Really interesting, we read verse 31. You shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall remain for me oil of sacred anointment for your generations. There's prohibitions related to this oil. It shall not be smeared on human flesh, and you shall not duplicate it in its formulation. It is holy. It shall remain holy to you. Anyone who shall compound its like, or who shall put it upon an alien, meaning a non-Kohen, shall be cut off from his people. This is one of the most severe punishments that we have in the Torah when someone gets excised, when someone gets disenfranchised, when someone gets caught off from the Jewish people, they did something so egregious, it removes them from their people, they're on their own, they're disenfranchised, they are excommunicated, they're not part of the people. If someone either duplicates this anointment oil, or if someone uses it for something which is not the correct purpose, if they use it to smear a regular alien, a regular individual, not someone who is a priest, or who's becoming a high priest, or someone who is a king, as we read in the commentaries, that is something that is anathema, and it's a very severe sin. And it's also interesting, uh, Rashi points out, this shall remain for me oil of sacred anointment for your generations. Meaning, and Rashi says, that this same jar of oil that Moses made was used not just once, the same collection of oil was used for the generations. For hundreds of years afterwards, whenever there was a high priest who was elevated to the status of the high priest, they would be anointed with the same oil. And whenever there was a king who ascended to the monarchy, not via inheritance, that king was also anointed with the same jar of oil. No matter how much you poured out of it, it did not diminish. And then Rashi tells us, That in the future, when there is a need for us to anoint the King Messiah or the upcoming Kohen Gadol, when we rebuild the third temple, what are we going to use? We're going to find somehow this very same vial, this very same jug of anointment oil, and that is going to be used to anoint the King Messiah and the high priest. The next item that Moshe is instructed to create is the Ketores, the incense. Hashem tells Moshe, take this very complicated array of spices, all the commentators trying to figure out what they are, a list of 11 spices, and you create a compound out of it. Again, the handiwork of a perfumer, you mix it very thoroughly, And you grind it very finely. And this is going to be used, like we read about last week, the Torah offering twice a day, morning and evening, a total of 368 times in a solar year. There's 365 days. And uh, there's two per day. Plus, there's three additional times that we do it on Yom Kippur. Like we read last week, Yom Kippur, there is a few extra sacrifices, a few extra activities that don't happen on the rest of the day. And interestingly, the sages tell us that this was only made, this mixture was only made once a year. And because it was made to be used every single day, there was a tremendous amount of quantity that had to be made. And like we said, it was made only once. And the estimation is that the total weight of all the ingredients when it was made every year was about – 1,800 or so pounds, roughly five pounds of this incense was used each day. Now, interestingly, Rashi tells us, quoting from our sages in the Talmud, that there was one of the ingredients was the chelbana, and it was a foul-smelling spice. And Rashi tells us that there's a certain lesson, the fact that this, the incense, this tremendous offering that gives such a beautiful aroma, actually one of those ingredients in isolation when not taken together with the rest of the ingredients actually smelled quite terrible. And Rashi tells us that the lesson behind that is that whenever there's a union, of the Jewish people. Whenever we pray together as a nation, whenever we fast together as a nation, we cannot disinclude the sinners amongst us. We can't say, oh, you know what? You guys smell bad. You're not included. This is an activity done by only the people who are upstanding, the people who are tzaddikim, who are righteous. We don't say that. Why? Just like the Katoras has to have some foul-smelling spice amongst it, so too, the Jewish people, if we're going to have that same aromatic Unity, we have to have everyone amongst us, even those that have the the bad smell. And together, that creates the katorisk, together that creates the beautiful aroma of the Jewish people. And Rabbeinu Bachai, one of the other commentaries, adds that this is why on the holiday of Sukkot, we take the, the lulav and the esrog, And he points out that some of them have a really beautiful smell, some of them have a foul smell, but all of it's brought together. There's a union amongst all the various factions, so to speak, of the Jewish people, and that's how it is appeasing, so to speak, to God. I think there's also another tremendous lesson here, another pedagogical parenting lesson here. The Talmud tells us that when the Ketores was offered in the Temple in Jerusalem, Nobody in the entire city of Jerusalem needed perfume. Everyone smelled beautifully. Why? Because the Ketores spread out such a beautiful smell over the entire city. No one needed to add their own artificial perfume. Meaning that even though amongst this collection of spices, there was one that had a very foul smell. But even something that has a foul smell, if you add the right combinations... Not only will the foul smell be masked, but the, the total result will be something so beautiful, something so heavenly aromatic. If you find, for example, in a child or in, in an individual, you find that they have something about them, something about their character that's, that's so repulsive. It, it's, it smells bad. It's something wrong. It's something which is shameful. What do you do? You take the lesson of the Katoras. It's possible for you to add the right ingredients, push the right buttons, and the result will be something that, like the like the incense, will be heavenly aromatic. Okay, so chapter 31 begins with uh, the beginnings of the instructions of the implementation of building the tabernacle and all its vessels. God tells Moses, See, behold, I have called by a name, Bezalel ben Uri ben Hur, from the tribe of Judah. Bezalel, he is going to be someone who is going to be very instrumental in building and assembling and embroidering and constructing everything needed for the tabernacle and its vessels. Why? Continues verse 3, I filled him with godly spirit, with wisdom, with insight, with knowledge, and every craft we've designed to work with gold, silver, and copper stone cutting for setting, wood carvings to perform every craft. He is so talented. He is the right man for the job. He's going to oversee the project. He's going to be the project manager for the Mishkan. The Ramban notes, very interesting, that the beginning of this instruction is, rei. see, behold, I have called B'Tzala. There's something that's so wondrous about B'Tzala, you have to just behold it. And the Rabbana offers several explanations. What is this wondrous thing about Petzal? So the first thing he says is that, you know, a few months earlier, the Jewish people were enslaved, working hard labor. And suddenly you have someone like Petzal, he has still to deal with delicate and precise and intricate work, gem-cutting, embroidery, dealing with very delicate Materials. What a wondrous thing that despite the fact that people were working a very gruff, hard labor, you have someone who has the delicateness and the skill to deal with this very precise work. That's the first interpretation. See what a wondrous thing. In addition, the Ramban adds a second explanation, and that is that Salah understood not just how to construct the Mishra and the tabernacle and all its vessels, but also understood you know, the deep meaning behind all The vessels, he not only knew how to make them, but he also knew what they represented. Thirdly, the Ramban says, very interesting. A, C, God showed Moses something that showed that Bitzala was qualified and was indeed designated for this very important job. He showed him the book of Adam. Adam had a book. In the book, it listed all the important people of all of human history. And then under the entry for person required to build the Mishron, it said, B'Tzalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, from the tribe of Judah. Really interesting idea that almost it's preordained, it's predestined that certain people, maybe really all of us on our own level, but people are preordained all the way back from the beginning of, The history of mankind, there are certain roles that we, each one of us, I would say in a general sense, but certainly the the great leaders, the great movers and shakers, there's a role that they have that they were given to them, so to speak, by God and shown in a book all the way to our earliest forbearer, Adam, what their job is, what their role is. See, behold, look, it says in the book of Adam that this is a great job for Bitzalel. And Rashi points out that B'Tsalal has godly spirit and he has wisdom and he has insight and he has knowledge, all these different kinds of intellect. Rashi tells us, what does it mean, wisdom? It means that what they learn from other people, they absorb. What does it mean, insight? It means even things that they don't learn, they can learn on their own, a different, a different kind of Intellect. I would argue maybe an intellect that's not focused enough in our educational system. And finally, knowledge, what does that refer to? Well, that's the Holy Divine Spirit. As an aside, our sages tell us, B'tzalel, when he was tasked with the responsibility of constructing the Mishkan, was a grand total of 13 years old. He has with him Ohaliyah, Benachisamach. From the tribe of Dan, they're going to build and construct all the various materials, all the various vessels, the edifice of the Mishkan and everything in it and everything we've learned about in the past two Parshas and a half. Uh, Verse 12 we read, Now you speak to the children of Israel saying, however, even though it's so critical, so important, so vital, so crucial, so necessary to build the Mishkan, however, my my Shabbos, my Sabbaths, this you must observe, for it is a sign to me and you, for your generations, to know that I am Hashem. Even though it's so important to build the Mishkan, you may not desecrate the Shabbos—not the Shabbos that comes every week, not the Shabbos that comes every festival—you cannot desecrate that in order to construct the tabernacle. Why? For it is a sign to me and you, for your generations, to know that I am Hashem. This is the source, so this is one of the sources that we are told that what is prohibited on Shabbos are the things that are needed to construct the tabernacle. Everything that you need to do to build a tabernacle, you may not do. On Shabbos. Like we're told over here, you can't do anything to advance the construction of the tabernacle on Shabbos because everything that you would want to do is prohibited. And of course, our sages tell us, this is from the oral Torah, that there's 39 distinct categories of work needed to construct the tabernacle and ergo 39 prohibition, 39 Malachos that you cannot do 39 categories of work that you cannot do on Shabbos. And of course, our sages tell us that there's a very deep connection between the idea of Shabbos and the idea of the Mishkan. Uh, for example, Shabbos is this idea, this touch point of two worlds, where the with the heavenly world and the physical world meet. And of course, the Mishkan is the place where God says, "I'm going to come visit. I'm going to come dwell. The heavenly abode is going to descend in this particular place." So there's a certain connection between this world and the next world. That is the essence of holiness that is personified both by the mitzvah of Shabbos that we experience till today and by the construction of the Mishkan. Interestingly, the verse here tells us that Shabbos is a sign between God and the Jewish people. And our sages point out that there's three mitzvahs that are classified by the Torah as a sign between God and the Jewish people. And they are Shabbos, number one, number two, circumcision, number three, the mitzvah of tefillin. And the Talmud tells us that the reason why we don't wear tfilin on Shabbos is because a Jew has to always have two witnesses testifying to the fact that they believe in God. And therefore, during the week, well, what do you have? You have your circumcision, and you have the tefillin. So every day of the week, you have, you have two. Comes along Shabbos not only Shabbos, but festivals too, you have a third sign, a third witness, so to speak, testifying that you believe in God. And therefore, on Shabbos, you don't wear filling because you already have the other two. And just to kind of touch briefly on the idea of the sign, the Chavetz Chaim was famous for saying that the sign between God and the Jewish people in Shabbos is akin to a sign of a store. You know, you have a store and the store is a storefront and on top you have a sign that announces the name of the store, maybe a little bit about what they sell. What happens? You go to a strip mall, you go to a uh, a store and you see there's a sign. Sign says, this is, I don't know, a shoe store. And you go to the door and the door is locked. Well, so long as the sign is still there, you assume it's still open for business. You come back maybe a week later, maybe the guy went on vacation, maybe they they closed it for the summer. But the second they take down the sign, well, then you think, okay, that it's all over. The relationship that the Jew has with God, of course, is the most important thing, and the sign to ensure that this is still an active relationship, that is the Shabbos. And finally, the last verse of chapter 31, when he finished speaking to him on Mount Sinai, God gave to Moses two tablets of testimony. This is the two tablets, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. So it's important to stress here the chronology. We've talked about it over the last couple of weeks. Rashi here clarifies it, reiterates it again. The Torah is not necessarily written chronologically. And the episode of the Golden Calf, that actually preceded the instructions of Parshas Teruma of building the Mishkan by many days. Why? Because Moshe, after Mount Sinai, after the Ten Commandments, after Revelation, goes up to heaven for 40 days. He comes back down on the seventh day of Tammuz, breaks the luchos, breaks the, the the tablets, which we're going to read about in chapter 32, and goes back up a second time. Eventually goes up a third time, comes down the third time on Yom Kippur, when God finally accedes to his request to forgive the Jewish people. And the next day, that's when the instruction to build the Mishkan was conveyed and the Mishran was erected on the first day of Nisan So the events of chapter 32 actually happened before the events described in the last two and a half, Parshios. Now, chapter 32 is going to tell the story of the golden calf. So the first uh, six verses is maybe the most uh, challenging episode in, in the whole Torah. How did this happen? You know, we're, we're at such a high, quite literally, on top of the mountain, on top of the world, at the pinnacle of human experience... Jewish people experience prophecy, and then very quickly it descends uh, quite precipitously. The people saw that Moses had delayed in descending the mountain. And the people gathered on Aaron and said to him, Rise up, make for us gods that will go before us. For this man Moses who brought us up from land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This very first verse gives us a lot of... Here to unpack. And I want to just make a quick note by saying that all the commentaries, each one each one of them has their own way of explaining exactly what happened. It's very voluminous. We're not gonna cover it all, we're gonna follow basically the interpretation of Rashi as we always do, and try to give a flavor to be able to cover the entire parsha. So the people saw that Moses delayed from descending the mountain. So there's a lot here that's implied that they knew that Moshe was delayed because they had an expected timeline. There was a certain discrepancy, and they saw the delay, which seems kind of odd. How could you see a delay? You just see that nothing happens. And, of course, the Hebrew words are a little bit odd uh, when it says that Moshe delayed, Boshesh, that Moshe delayed. It's a very unusual term. So Rashi tells us that Moshe, when he went up to heaven after the Ten Commandments, He told the Jewish people, 40 days, I'm going to be back within the first six hours of the day. That's what he told them. Goes up. And 40 days later, he doesn't come down. And the mistake was, or the miscalculation was, the discrepancy was, that they thought that the day the motion goes up, well, that's part of the count. That's day one. That's the first day he's not there. But he told them that it'd be up for 40 full days. And therefore the first day, the day that he ascended, doesn't count. And therefore, they're expecting him one day earlier. Moreover, the people see a delay. Rashi tells us because the Satan came and the Satan causes all kinds of confusion. He made it look like it was dark to indicate that Moshe had died. And he said to the Jewish people, well, six hours have passed. Moshe hasn't returned. And Satan also showed the Jewish people an image of Moshe being carried in a beer in a coffin in heaven. So the people say, well, Shesh, which means in Hebrew, the six has come. The six hours have come and Moshe's not here. And the Satan said, well, Shesh, the six hours have come. He's not here. So the people didn't listen to him. And then he said to them, well, he died. People didn't listen to him. Finally, Satan showed the coffin of Moses, and they were convinced, and they freaked out. Moses is dead. We are leaderless. Let us try to find another solution. Let's have someone lead us. Now, the Ramban points out, very important, that you read this story simply, it's implied that they wanted an alternative God instead of Moses. But if so, their sentence doesn't really make any sense. They tell Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Why? For this man, Moses, brought us up from the land of Egypt, and he's gone. Well, if you're looking to replace Moses, whom you readily say is a man, why would you look for a god to replace him? You should look for another man. So this, and really, everyone really agrees that at least initially, the plan was not to find an alternative god, but an alternative leader to replace the man, Moses. But of course, once they opened the door for some sort of representation of something spiritual, that quickly led to a slippery slope, and eventually, at least some people, actually descended to idolatry. Now, the people are very nervous, they're very concerned, they're very worried, and Aaron right away tries to avoid the problem. He recognizes that it's quite likely the Moshe is still going to come back. This is all a test, and therefore he says to them, "Okay, you know, how can we delay? How can we delay?" And he tells them, "Okay, well, let's let let's start. We want to make this this God. Okay, sure, but take off the gold rings that are in the ears of your wives and your children. Bring bring them to me. Let, let's make it really nice. Let's have something gold, but." You know what? If you went to your wife or, you know, you try to convince someone's wife, why don't you give me all your gold, all your jewelry? Because I have a very important thing. Most likely the women are going to say, ah, eh, I'm not so sure about that. Uh, let's think about it. Let's wait a day or so. They're not going to e- easily part with their jewelry. That was his calculation. But what happened? They go and they snatch all the gold rings in the ears and they bring it to Aaron. And now, okay, he's got tons of gold. What to do now? How do we delay it further? So he takes it from their hands, bounds it up in a cloth, and he turns it into a molten calf. Well, why did Aaron do that? So Rashi again explains that he didn't do that intentionally. He took all the gold and made a melting pot, made a fire, and the mixed multitude, those Egyptians that kind of joined with the Jewish people, jumped in the bandwagon we read about a few weeks ago. Some of them had at least an affinity for idolatry and had certain skills with magic. And they somehow turned this pot of gold into this magical little golden calf. And Rashi adds, a a second alternative opinion, is that when Moshe went to get the bones of Joseph, which were buried in the bottom of the Nile River, he put a special plate of metal and wrote on it, alay shar, arise, O ox. Joseph, after all, was compared to an ox. One of those individuals, one of the people who were saved from Egypt, went and snatched that plate of metal and pocketed it. And then when Aaron puts all the gold into the melting pot, They throw in that same special metal plate that says, Arise, O ox, and a little ox, a baby golden calf, comes out. And our sadists tell us that this was not a regular frozen statue of golden calf. In fact, it had some magical powers. It was able to run around. It was pretty impressive. Okay, well, what now? They said, this is verse 4, This is your God, O Israel, which brought you off the land of Egypt. So interestingly, right? this is where Rashi points out, this is your God. They don't say this is our God. It's only the mixed multitude rendered it into a God as opposed to a leader. Yes, there were some Jews who were complicit in this whole desire to make golden calf of sorts, but only the mixed multitude took it to the next level and to idolatry. And Aaron saw what happened and he built an altar, this is verse 5, and Aaron called out and said, a festival for Hashem tomorrow. Again, Aaron's trying to delay, Let, let's try to keep cool, let's try to delay this as long as possible, let's wait, wait and see what happens. First of all, he's going to build the altar himself, again to slow things down, and again to delay the festival till the next day. Now the first words of this verse, verse 5, and Aaron saw Rashi, gives us four different explanations to what Aaron exactly saw and all that contributes to understanding what actually happened. The first is that Aaron saw that the golden calf had some sort of life to it. A second interpretation is that Aaron saw Hur, who was his nephew, the son of Miriam. Hur, after all, when Moses went up to the mountain, he says, okay, Aaron and Hur, you're in charge. If anyone has any questions, come to you. So Hur was really responsible. He was the leader, one of the leaders in place of of Moshe. And he sees what's happening. And of course, he starts to rebuke them. What are you doing? Let's wait another day just to make sure before we go take these drastic measures, make golden calves. What are we thinking? He starts to rebuke them. He starts to criticize them. And the mob murders him. And Aaron sees Hur on the floor. And he realizes, well, what happens if they do that to me? I'm the high priest. I'm one of the leaders of the Jewish people. If they kill me, then there is no way to fix their sin. And therefore, I have to make sure that they don't kill me, not because I want to stay alive. Of course, I want to stay alive. But specifically for the benefit of the Jewish people, they better not touch me because if they do, disastrous consequences. A third explanation from Rashi is that Aaron says, you know what? I want to contribute to this. I know it's a disaster. I know it's a catastrophe. I know it's a total debacle, but you know what? Let me have a portion of it. It won't be just entirely at the feet of the Jewish people. And finally, a fourth interpretation we just mentioned. He saw that they started building the, the the altar. And if they build it, they build it really fast. I want to delay, delay, delay. And therefore, let me build it. Aaron's carefully laid plans notwithstanding. Verse 6, they arose early the next day, offered up elevation offerings, brought peace offerings. The people sat to eat and drink. And they started to revel. So here we see how things are spiraling. They want a replacement for Moses. Some people say, well, it's a God. The next day they say, okay, let's, let's bring sacrifices. Let's do something spiritual. But because this is off, you know, to the wrong direction, this is not done properly. This is not sanctioned. What starts off as elevation offerings, what starts with spiritual, descends into eating and drinking and eventually to revelry. Rashi tells us this is murder, this is adultery, this is idolatry, this is all the worst sins. Meanwhile, God tells Moshe, Descend, your people have done something really terrible. They've strayed from the way that I've commanded them. They made them a golden calf. They've prostrated to it. They sacrificed to it. They said, this is your God. This is a terrible people. I, I'm done with them. They're stiff-necked people. Desist from me. Allow me. Let my anger flare up against them. I'm going to annihilate them and I'm going to make you a great nation. The people are stubborn. They're, they're your nation. It's your fault. Rashi explains, God tells Moshe, you're the one who tried to bring to all these mixed multitude. You said, Hey, it's great. Let me, let, let me convert them. But they're the ones that really accelerated this terrible golden calf, therefore it's your responsibility, and and they're very stubborn, and even though they did idolatry, their their stubbornness is really the biggest problem. And then he says to Moshe, you know what, allow me to destroy them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy them, and I'm going to make you a, a great nation. And this is really interesting, because Moshe is in heaven, and he's being offered a promotion essentially. I'm going to destroy all the Jewish people, we'll start again. We'll have a new Jewish nation and you'll be the father of the Jewish nation. Let my anger flare up against them, and I shall annihilate them, and I shall make you a great nation. This sounds like a godfather offer, and of course, Moshe refuses. But there's a very interesting Rashi here. God tells Moshe, let my anger flare up against them. Desist from me. Stop praying. Rashi asks the question, wait a minute. Moshe didn't even start praying. Moshe has just been informed of this terrible development, and God is already saying, allow me to do it. Stop praying. Says Rashi, quote from the Talmud, that God is opening up a window for Moshe. He's telling him, yes, I'm telling you I want to destroy the Jewish people, but I'm saying desist from me so that I can destroy them, meaning implying that this matter is subject to prayer. If you pray, they won't be destroyed. And for the rest of the Parsha, really, it's going to be Moshe praying, interceding, taking drastic action, all these successive stages of prayer, expiation, trying to excise the people that are the most responsible, taking all these steps to fix what had happened and to try to rectify what had happened and to save the Jewish people. So he begins, Moshe pleads before Hashem is God and says, why has Hashem should your anger for up against the people? These are the people who took of the land of Egypt. What's gonna happen? Egypt's gonna say, well, God took them out of the, of, of, of here, and he just took them to kill them in the mountains and to annihilate them from the, from the face of the earth. And then Moshe invokes Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember for the sake of Abram, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and you told them, I shall increase your offspring like the stars of the heaven. You made a promise to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, a promise that you linked to yourself, meaning a promise that's gotta be true, that you're going to increase their offspring, and now you're going to kill them. And you know what? Abraham, he was the one who was tested with 10 tests in the book of Genesis. If the Jewish people transgressed the 10 commandments, let the 10 tests that Abraham triumphed, let that save them. Isaac, he was someone who was willing to die for your sake, save his descendants in his merit. You want to punish the Jewish people? Well, Jacob, he was punished sufficiently over his life In his merit, may you save them. What are you suggesting, says Moshe to God? You want to make me a great nation? Well, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're great founders of the nation that exists right now. And if their merit is not enough to save the Jewish people, if a stool that rests on three legs cannot withstand, what's going to be with me? I'll be the father of the new nation. I'll have only one leg, and certainly that will not have continuity. So this is Moshe's first argument, and it works. Verse 14, Hashem reconsidered regarding the evil that he declared that he would do to his people. Now, it's important to stress, this is not yet total forgiveness. God's going to reconsider that initially God said he was going to punish the Jewish people and destroy them right away. And now he's like, well, I'm going to punish them, but not right away. There's there's a certain grace period, or there's a break, there, there is maybe another window into saving them entirely. Okay, now Moshe's going, this is Moshe's prayer while he's still in heaven. Now Moshe's now going to go down. And before he descends, we're told that he's carrying with him the two tablets. Tablets inscribed on both their side, on one side and on the other. These are God's handiwork. The script was the script of God engraved on the tablets. We have two verses here in verse 15 and 16 that are lauding the tablets, etched by God, written on both sides, letters suspended mid-ear. Why do we need to be told the middle of the description of Moshe trying to save the Jewish people after the golden calf? Why do we need to be told about the praise of the tablets? Ramban tells us that Moshe is about to do something very heroic, with the tablets. But first, in order to tell us how great Moshe's act with the tablets was, the Torah tells us about the praise, lauding the praise of the tablets to impress upon us what Moshe actually did. This is something, tablets written by God, tremendous miracles, amazing. Now, Joshua we left him last, he went with Moshe to the mountain as far as he could go and he was there for the duration of 40 days. So Joshua is the only person that's not amongst the camp doesn't hear what's happening. He's still waiting for Moshe. He pitched his tent at the foot of the mountain. So Moshe's descending. Meanwhile, Joshua's hearing all the sounds of shouting from the camp. And Joshua tells Moshe, well, it sounds like there's a war in the camp. And Moshe corrects him, no, this is not a sound of winning, this is not a sound of losing. This is a sound of distress. This is a very interesting exchange. Joshua posits the, you know, how he understands the sound. We know, of course, that it's not a sound of war. It's a sound of revelry and celebration of the golden calf. Moshe tells him, no, 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 it's not this kind of sound. It's that kind of sound. Really interesting. You know, the, the Torah finds the need to tell us this interesting conversation that happens amidst of the entire golden calf saga. And the matrix tells us something very interesting. It says that this demonstrates the relationship between Moshe and Joshua. It's the epitome of the role of a teacher and their student. The teacher is responsible to teach their charge, to prepare them for what lies ahead. Joshua is destined to lead the Jewish people, and therefore Moshe is positioning him and priming him for the role, which includes knowing to differentiate between various different types of cries and sounds. So they start walking back to the camp together and they see the golden calf and they see the revelry and they see the dancing. Moshe's anger flares out. He throws down the tablets from his hands. He shatters them at the foot of the mountain. He takes the calf, burns it in the fire, grinds it to a fine powder, sprinkles it in the water and makes the children of Israel drink it. This is really interesting. Moshe just minutes earlier was in heaven. He finds out about this terrible tragedy that happened. He's descending with the tablets. He breaks the tablets as soon as he sees what happens to the Jewish people. The Talmud tells us that there were three decisions that Moshe made unilaterally and he didn't consult God and God agreed with him that he made the right choice. And one of them is that he broke the tablets and he didn't ask God if that was the right thing to do. And I think there's, you know, there's a question here. Why break it? Maybe he should return it to God, return to sender. Uh, Also, maybe the people of Israel that did not commit the sin of the golden calf, maybe they should have the rights to have a tablet that is unbroken. So these are good questions. And of course, subject to to tremendous uh, literature on the subject. But I, I saw the Kliakr, one of the commentaries, offers several novel interpretations. The first one he says is that the second the tablets came in contact with the camp with the Jewish people... The letters, the miraculous letters written by God, they flew off. They totally departed. They they can't partake in such a scene. They left. And then what happens? The spiritual power of God that was infused in the tablets, well, that departed. That left. So what do you have? You have two massive stone tablets. It became heavy for Moses, and therefore he dropped it. He couldn't hold it. That's the first explanation. A second explanation is that Moshe willfully destroyed the tablets. Why? to erase the evidence of their guilt. This tablet was almost like a testament, like a document describing the relationship between the Jewish people and God. And therefore, Moshe wants to destroy the evidence to be able to protect the Jewish people from their guilt. And finally, a third interpretation is that Moshe wanted to be included in their sins, similar to what we saw with Aaron. Aaron wants to partake in itself in a little bit to bear some of the guilt. It shouldn't be entirely on the shoulders of the Jewish people. Moshe as well wanted to do the same, and therefore he broke it. He, so to speak, contributed to this defilement. And then he takes the golden calf, he grinds it into a powder, puts it in the water, and gives the Jewish people to drink. Rashi tells us that there were three different kinds of people that died as a result of the sin of the golden calf. You had the people that committed idolatry full-fledged idolatry together with witnesses and with warning and they were killed via the sword you had people that did idolatry without warning and they died in the plague and then you had the people that committed idolatry without witnesses and, and without warning and they were judged by the water they drank the water and if they were guilty their stomach exploded as a result And then Moshe turns to Aaron, his brother, and he says, what happened? What did these people do to you that you brought a grievous sin upon it? So it's interesting that Moshe is criticizing Aaron, not for Aaron's participation in the sin, but what did the people do to you to force your hand to do this grievous sin upon them? And the Ramban asks the question, wait a minute, shouldn't Moshe first criticize the fact that Aaron participated and only then talk about the fact that he he contributed towards the sin of the Jewish people? And the Rabban answers two answers that first of all, well Aaron is Moses' older brother, and it's improper for someone to criticize their older brother. And therefore he did not want to talk about Aaron's participation, Aaron's sin, Aaron's guilt, only the guilt of the nation. Alternatively, Moshe knew, was confident in his heart that his brother indeed was righteous. He didn't do anything wrong. And therefore, he only spoke about the guilt of the nation because he, after all, Aaron was participating to some degree in what the nation did in the guilt of the nation. So Aaron tries to justify it. He says, well, don't get angry at me. You know, these people, they have a certain disposition towards evil They said to me, make a god, or go before us, Moshe's Moshe's gone, we don't know what happened to them, I didn't know what to do, so I asked for gold, they gave me the gold, I threw it to the fire, the calf emerged, I didn't really know that this calf would emerge. And then Moshe looks around and assesses the situation, he realizes there's something disgraceful about about this nation, there's something evil, there's something wicked that we need to get rid of, it's not the nation that is going to be the nation that's going to flourish and fulfill the destiny of the Jewish people. So Moshe takes another drastic measure. He goes to the entrance of the camp and he declares, Who is for Hashem? Join me. me la Hashem Eli. Who is the person, who are the people that are willing to say we're with God completely, 100%, no questions asked. And the entire tribe of Levites gathered around him. And he said to them, Okay, this is what Hashem wants us. Every man, gather your sword in your thigh, go from gate to gate in the camp, and every man kill his brother, every man is fellow, every man is near one, find the people that were guilty, not just guilty because they, uh, they were complicit, but actually did idolatry. And let's get rid of those people. Those people have no, have no business being part of our nation. So the Levites did as Moshe said, and they went through the camp and they executed about 3,000 men that actually died. And Moshe said to them, dedicate yourselves this day to Hashem. Each has opposed his son and his brother. You were brave. Even if someone was related to you, you were willing to do what's right. You were 100% committed to God. And may he bestow upon you a blessing like this very day. This is important uh, to stress. It seems like if you read that the the parsha simply the entire nation committed idolatry what what a disaster and here we see well how many people actually were guilty to the degree that they were worthy of capital punishment around 3000 which out of a nation of 600,000 adult males is 0.5%. These are the ones that overtly with warning committed idolatry it's a very minute portion of the nation but of course the nation as a whole They suffer because they're part of this nation that had this huge blunder. So this is the next stage of Moshe's efforts to try to save the Jewish people. And he gives them another reprimandation. You've committed a grievous sin. I'm going to go back to heaven. Maybe I can win atonement in the face of your sin. Maybe despite the fact that you have the sin, I can still try to get atonement. The next day, Moshe goes to Hashem and says to them, Okay, I implore you, the people committed a grievous sin. They made themselves a god of gold. But I want you to forgive their sin. And if not, erase me now from the book that you have written. This is what we mentioned briefly at the beginning of last week's parsha. Moshe tells God, I'm not going to go with this plan. You're going to make me into a great nation. If you want to destroy them, you have to destroy me too. I'm not interested in being part of it if they're going to be destroyed. So God responds to Moses, whoever sinned against me, I shall erase my book. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy all the people that sinned. Again, Here is another stage of the atonement, of the forgiveness. God is not going to threaten the Jewish people as a whole, only the individuals that sinned. And each person is going to be judged to the degree that they sinned. But there's going to be a downgrade. Now go and lead the people to where I've told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you, and on the day that I make my account, I shall bring their sin to account against them. So there's two things Yairashi points out. Number one, they're downgraded, that no longer is God saying, I'm going to lead you. It's going to be an angel who's going to lead you. In addition, that they're going to be punished in in small bursts. Every time the Jewish people are going to be punished, there's going to be a small sliver of punishment that is going to be related to the sin of the golden calf. God's not going to punish them with the golden calf all at once. Rather, he's going to spread it out over the millennia of history. The Talmud tells us that any bathing that happens to the Jewish people has within it a small degree of the golden calf residue of punishment, uh, left over. And finally, chapter 32 ends that Hashem struck the people with a plague because they made the calf that Aaron had made. This is the ones who sinned without witnesses or warning. Why is there no count as to how many people died? We don't know how many people died. The Rabban suggests that perhaps the people that were stricken with this plague, they did not die immediately, but they were, they had the plague and they died ahead of their time. And Hashem spoke to Mosh, this is the beginning of chapter 33, go ascend from here, you and the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land about which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I'll give it to your offspring. You ascend, but I shall not ascend with you, for you are a stiff-necked people, lest I annihilate you on the way. Again, God's saying that the angel's going to take you, it's not going to be God, and that's the status that they're in right now. The people mourn, they take off their crowns, and God tells them, listen, the fact that I'm sending an angel with you, that's actually to your benefit. Why? Because if I am amongst you... And you start rebelling, if you start being stiff-net, I'm going to get angry at you and I'm going to punish you right away. Therefore, ironically, having an angel there leading you is to your benefit because you're going to have more stability. Because if I'm there, there's a very low tolerance, certainly now, for any misconduct. So the people take off their jewelry, they start mourning, they're stripped of their jewelry that they got at Mount Sinai. They just tell us they got at Mount Sinai multiple crowns, they lost those crowns. And then Moshe takes his tent in which he has prophecy and he moves it outside the camp. God's not coming to the camp. God's not going to enter the camp and therefore there's no way for Moshe to have prophecy inside the camp. He has to take his tent and go outside of the camp. And this is going to continue until the Mishkan is erected. Almost a year later, Moshe is going to have prophecy with God not amongst the camp but in this tent, the tent of meeting which is outside the camp. And the Torah describes what happened. Whenever Moshe would go out to the tent, the entire people would stand up, remaining standing, and they would gaze after Moshe until he arrives to the tent. And when Moshe arrived at the tent, there was a pillar of cloud that would descend at the entrance of the tent. God would speak to Moshe. The entire people would see the pillar of cloud, which is a representation of God, and they would bow down. They would prostrate themselves. And God would speak to Moshe face to face as a man would speak to his fellow. Then return to the camp and Joshua did not depart him. Again, Joshua is the consummate student never departs from Moshe. Now, again, there's a little bit complications here with the chronology. Rashi here in verse 11 of chapter 33 explains the chronology. There's three times that Moshe goes up the mountain, each for 40 days apiece, eventually comes down in comes down Yom Kippur. The next day he's instructed to make the tabernacle. Now, the Ramban tells us with respect to the rest of this chapter that unless someone is steeped in Kabbalah, they're not really going to understand it. Moshe tells God, you say to me, take this people onward, but you don't inform me whom you will send with me. Which angel are you going to send? And now, if I have indeed found favor in your eyes, make your ways known to me, so that I might comprehend you have found favor in my eyes. You say I, I, that I have found favor in your eyes. I want to understand what that means. And the Talmud explains the book of Broncos what what actually Moshe wanted to see. He had various requests. He wanted to he wanted the the, the the divine presence to rest upon the Jewish people. He wanted the divine presence to not rest on the various Gentile nations. He wanted to know the ways of God, why God treats people in different ways, why good people have bad things to happen to them, bad people have good things to happen to them, etc. Show me your glory. Uh, Moshe is shown how to pray. Moshe is shown that beyond invoking the merit of the forefathers, is another way to pray. Even if the merit of the forefathers has been exhausted, there's another way how to pray, and God's going to show him another way how to pray. We'll see in a little bit. God shows him his back, but not his front. Moshe is placed in a cleft in the rock, and God passes by. Again, these are things which are very difficult for us to understand. What does it mean that God showed Moses the connection of the tefillin? It's, it's very hard for us to understand that. And this is, I would say, um, like the Ramban says, is, is clearly madness of the, of the esoterica. But chapter 34 begins where God tells Moshe, let's make the tablets 2.0. Make two stone tablets, like the ones that you made earlier, make two more, and the ones that you shatter are going to be replaced. By the new ones and ascend Mount Sinai again. So this is the third time Moshe has gone up to Mount Sinai. The first time was to get the first tablets. The second time was to get a reprieve to the Jewish people, and the third time is going to be to get the second tablets. And again, the people have not yet been fully forgiven. That's going to happen in in in, in this chapter, and Moshe is going to be told the thirteen attributes of of mercy. But he's going to ascend Mount Sinai a third time and be there with God on the mountaintop again for forty days. And here, verse 3, we read: No man may ascend with you, nor may anyone be seen on the entire mountain, even the flock and the cattle may not graze facing that mountain. This is the opposite of the first time. The first time, the first tablets were done with tremendous pop and circumstance. There was all these sounds and all these fires and all that. Says, God, this time, no, this can be done modestly. First time, the first tablets, the Ein Harad, the evil eye, had a vise on the tablets, and that's why it was destroyed. But now there's nothing more beautiful than modesty. So Moshe carves out the two stone tablets. Moshe is going to do the tablets and God's going to inscribe upon the tablets, again, the messages of the first tablets. And then God descends in a cloud and stood with him and he called out with the name of Hashem. So now God is going to demonstrate to Moshe how he's going to pray to achieve forgiveness. And this is what's known as the 13 Attributes of Mercy. These are refrains that we repeat multiple times uh, during the high holiday season. God tells Moshe, when you want to pray, this is what you say. Hashem, Hashem. God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in kindness and truth, preserver of kindness for thousands of generations, forgiver of iniquity, of willful sin and error, who cleanses but does not cleanse completely recalling the iniquity of parents upon children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Rashi explains what this means. God has mercy upon someone before they sin and after they sin. And these are various attributes of, of mercy that God is slow to anger and God has abundant kindness and God gives reward for those who do the mitzvos. When God rewards, it's for thousands of generations. When God punishes, it's only for four generations. The good outweighs the bad by 500. Moshe again requests that God be amongst them. He's trying to get that last degree of atonement, of forgiveness. He said, this is verse 9, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, let my Lord go amongst us, for it's a stiff-necked people. Forgive the iniquity in our era. Make us your heritage. And God responds in the affirmative, pending certain conditions. There's going to be a covenant. There's going to be a certain agreement. Uh, the the Jewish people are going to dis- be distinct. But when you get to the land of Israel and get to the land of Canaan, you have to destroy all the altars of idolatry. You have to smash their pillars. You have to uproot their trees. Don't make a covenant with the idolatrous nations. Don't make any more molten molten more, more gods. Observe the festivals and the Torah lists the three festivals and the pilgrimages, and there's a promise of security, despite the fact that Jewish people will leave their homes and leave their fields unwatched, they'll be guarded. Again, they're told to observe the Shabbos. They're also given other instructions, and these are all conditions upon which God is, is hinging his commitment to again reaccept the Jewish people wholeheartedly. And finally, God forgave the Jewish people. He gives Moshe, again, a second set of tablets. Moshe descends from Mount Sinai. He doesn't realize that his face had become radiant. He was glowing. He was as bright as the sun. The people couldn't look at him. And they all started to turn away. There's a very beautiful Rashi here that I like to read every year in verse 30. The verse reads, Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moshe, and behold, the skin of his face had become radiant. They fared to approach him. says, Rashi, come and see the power of sin. Until the Jewish people sinned, they were able to experience prophecy with God and they weren't terrified. And now once they did the golden calf, even the bright beacon of light that was Moshe, they could not withstand. And then Moshe descends and starts teaching the Jewish people, again, things have been normalized. Maybe it's not quite the same level as it was at Mount Sinai, but Moshe has achieved Via his prayer, via his intercession, via his uh, very strong actions, he has achieved full forgiveness for the Jewish people. The day that Moshe is fully forgiven, the day that he comes back with the two sets of tablets, tablets 2.0, that day is Yom Kippur. That's the day which is designated for forgiveness, for atonement. The first time we had Yom Kippur was God forgiving the Jewish people for the sin of the golden calf. Therefore, it became a day ensconced in history a day of forgiveness. There's a very interesting Rashi in verse 32 about how Moshe taught. He would teach to Aaron and then he would teach to Aaron's children and then to the elders and then eventually to everyone a very important Rashi to understand how the Torah was conveyed for the duration of the 40 years. And then we find out that because Moshe's face was glowing he wore a mask to cover his face. Whenever he would speak to God he would remove the mask and whenever he would speak to the Jewish people, he would place a mask above his face. Interestingly, Moshe, our sages tell us, became like an angel. And therefore, his communication with God was natural. Whereas, when he communicated to the Jewish people, he had to wear a mask. He had to put on an artificial body. Thus concludes the Parsha. Next week, uh, we have Parsha's Vayakel, which is dedicated to the actualization implementation of the instructions of building the tabernacle. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Again, a reminder, please visit GiveTorch.org. Every donation is tripled. We need your support. The website is GiveTorch.org. My email address is RabbiWalby at gmail.com.